Cool. I welcome everybody uh, to this uh, unusual Sunday school. Uh, we're uh, uh, privileged, I think, this morning to have a controversial topic. I am uh, joyful, actually, in being up here and announcing this because it is difficult, because it is controversial, because there are disagreements. We get to disagree in unity, and we get to disagree as the body of Christ, and we get to do it out of responsibility and out of obligation uh, in love together. And that, to me, fills me with joy. So I hope it does you as well. Uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you that uh, you have brought us here together in fellowship today. Uh, thank you that you have provided us with an expert that, uh, who, who, um, uh, who can speak to this topic. And, and uh, we pray, Lord, that you will uh, help us all to um, listen with open ears in the spirit in which uh, all of this is intended um, and to listen with open hearts as brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Susan? Good morning. So um, I'm really thankful to be here and thankful that Pastor Tim asked me to come speak on this. Um, for those of you who don't know me beyond being the piano player, I am a family practice physician. Um, I've been in practice for nearly 20 years now, um, and I'm specialty trained to take care of patients from infancy, obstetrics, all the way up through geriatrics. So that includes knowing a lot about vaccines. Um, since this pandemic started a year ago now, it's hard to believe it's been a year, um, I've been uh, on networking online with almost 40,000 other physicians who have been treating COVID patients all over the world, um, including in the hospital. And I will tell you that online network was really useful in the beginning. It was like a lighthouse in the fog where people could actually talk about what was working and what wasn't. Um, and we've also been discussing the development of the vaccines. Um, as as you're, I'm sure you're all aware, the internet is full of a treasure trove of information, but not all that uh, treasure is actual treasure. Um, even those of you who may not be the type to be uh, believing in conspiracy theories might say, well, gosh, if there are all these, you know, warnings coming from different directions, maybe I should just not even go anywhere near this vaccine. Um, so the reason I'm here today isn't to convince you to get the shot, though obviously I have an opinion on this. My point of being here today is to make sure that whatever decision you make, whether to vaccinate or not, is based on true information. And so I'm here to hopefully explain some of the science to you, talk about some of the things that aren't true that are circulating around, and then hopefully help you make an informed decision uh, about whether or not you should vaccinate. Okay, so today I'm gonna talk about just briefly the difference between bacteria and viruses, because it's important to understand how vaccines work. Where our history of vaccines, um, how these COVID vaccines were developed, we're going to talk about some of the myths and misconceptions uh, circulating on the internet. And then uh, we're going to talk about vaccines from the Christian worldview and what this means for us as pro-life people. And then, and then finally, we'll look at where we are with the vaccination plan for Nevada. Okay, so the, the, the thing I want you to take home from this slide is the fact that um, viruses need something to reproduce. Um, they need a host, okay? and that antibiotics don't work. This is why we don't want to give you antibiotics for your cold, because a cold is a virus, okay? There are antiviral medicines for certain viruses out there. They don't cure the virus. They merely suppress the activity. So the thing to keep in mind when we're dealing with viruses is we do not have a cure for them, and they need a host. So everything we're doing with masks, social distancing, and now the vaccine, that is to deny that bacteria or that virus a host, okay? If it runs out of hosts, it, it functionally goes away. So this is what the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 or COVID virus looks like. Um, so in the center here, there's the genetic material of the virus. There's a fat layer that encapsulates it all. What happened to the projector? There it is. Okay. Um, and then these little spike proteins, um, are important because that's what lets the virus get into your cells. And so that's what most of the vaccines are targeting is that spike protein. Okay, 
busy diagram here. Basically, you inhale the virus through your nose or your mouth. It gets into your cells. The virus releases its genetic material and basically makes your cells reproduce it and create more viruses that go out all over the body. Something important to know about the COVID virus is that unlike, say, influenza, this doesn't just stay in your lungs and your upper respiratory system. The virus has now been shown to cause heart damage, kidney damage, and even uh, cross the blood brain barrier and, and potentially cause brain damage. Okay, so how do vaccines work? The most common vaccines, sorry. The most common vaccines use a weakened form of the virus to basically teach your body what the virus looks like so that you can build antibodies to it and fight it off uh, the next time you actually see the virus. But the, virus, the vaccines we're gonna talk about today, two of them, the Pfizer and Moderna, actually work in a completely different way. So we're gonna talk about that. Uh, the other thing I want you to know is that with certain viruses, we actually get a stronger immune response from a vaccine than from getting the virus itself. There's been multiple viruses where this has been the case. So, because um, a lot of people say, well, wouldn't it be better to just get it and then I've got this natural immunity. Actually, um, with a lot of viruses, we see longer lasting immunity with the vaccine. Okay, so vaccines have been around in some form for a long time. Smallpox inoculation, thought to go all back all the way back to 1000 AD. So it's not a new concept. When we finally discovered that bacteria were a thing in 1676, a lot more uh, uh, um, studies came out that differentiated between bacteria and viruses and then vaccines were developed. And then quite a few um, were developed in the late 50s and early 60s. How effective is a vaccine? So this diagram here shows three of the common ones, diphtheria, pertussis, and measles. These little blobs are case outbreaks, okay? You can see where each vaccine was introduced and how quickly the cases went down to pretty much nothing, okay? If you notice here in pertussis, we have started having some outbreaks again in 2015, which is why we all get a pertussis booster now, um, and in measles in 2013, and that was, that was mainly due to groups stop, that stopped vaccinating their children for a variety of reasons. The most famous and striking is polio. You can see there were 13,000 uh, paralytic cases of polio this year. They, they introduced the vaccine and now polio has functionally been eradicated in the United States. So instead of having hospitals full of iron lungs like this helping people to breathe, now we don't have polio anymore. Okay, herd immunity. Probably one of those top 10 terms of 2020. What is herd immunity? Herd immunity is basically the concept that if enough people in a, in a group are protected from a virus, then uh, the virus won't spread, okay? So we have our red guy here, he's Mr. Infection. If there are no, uh, if there's no herd immunity, you can see he can spread this to lots of people who can spread it to other people. And that brings us to where we are in the world right now with COVID. However, if we have herd immunity, all these green folks are protected, so the spread is a lot less. Sounds wonderful, then why do we need vaccines? You know, there's a huge uh, movement. You may have heard the Great Barrier Declaration coming out saying, you know what, we should all just get it and get it over with, and then we'll be immune. Well, we've never achieved herd immunity to any major infectious disease without vaccination. Just hasn't happened. Okay. Another thing that likes to circulate the internet is that the current case vitality rate right now is only 1.8%. Doesn't that mean 98.3% survive? Why should I wear a mask or, or social distance or get a vaccine if 98.3% survive? Well, calculate that out with the number of people in the US. If we had never done any social distancing and never had a vaccine, uh, you can't see the red there, so kind of op opposite of uh, making this stand out, over 5 million people would have died. So I'm not okay with 5, pe 5 million people dying if we can prevent it. Additionally, we have um, evidence of prolonged symptoms or long COVID um, with chronic heart and lung damage. Right now, they're estimating that 30% of people who survive are still having symptoms nine months after their infection or later. 
So that's no small thing. Uh, for some people, this means disability. This means being unable to work, unable to do things that they want to do. Okay, so how do they develop a vaccine? This is the process. It starts with, we call it phase one, which is a very small group of people, uh, brave people, because this is where they decide, well, you know, is this safe? It doesn't look like it might be effective. If they pass phase one, then it moves to phase two. Again, trying to see in larger numbers, do we start seeing more side effects? Is it still effective? Then next goes to phase three which is the hundreds to thousands of volunteers. So the Pfizer and Moderna uh, vaccines each had 30 to 40,000 people in them, okay? If they get through phase three and find that overall it's safe, it appears to be doing what we, what we think it, it's supposed to do, um, the side effects are not cumbersome, then the FDA will approve it. Now, in our case, they're under what we call emergency use authorization. So that's not full approval. It's basically saying, you know what, we're in a worldwide pandemic that's killing lots of people. We've got enough data to say that this is safe and effective to proceed, but we're gonna keep studying it. So they are still collecting tons of safety data on this. And anyone here who has gotten any of the vaccines, they have you sign up for a little site with the CDC. They ask you every day about symptoms, and we'll talk more about the ways they monitor that. So for most vaccines, this process takes anywhere from a year to about four years to get to the point where it's approved. So how is this one developed so fast? Well, the first thing, the scientists didn't have to start from scratch. This new mRNA technology has actually been studied for nearly 30 years now. They've been using it um, for targeted cancer treatments, and they've also been trying to develop other vaccines with it as well. Uh, the reason we, don't, we haven't seen other vaccines is not because that they weren't safe, they just weren't effective for that particular bug. So uh, COVID is the first one where we've seen some widespread effectiveness. Um, the whole world wanted an answer to this. I mean, it wasn't just us suffering. So we had all the best scientists all over the world uh, fast-tracking this, and they actually were able to sequence the, the DNA of the, or the RNA of the virus 10 days after the first reported case in China, which is crazy fast. Operation Warp Speed played a big part in this. Um, most of the time, those divisions between the phases, the, the time that it takes isn't because it's all collecting data, it's because each of those phases requires money. And so sometimes you'll have phase one, and if there's not enough funding, it might be six months or a year till you even start phase two. Operation Warp Speed paid for all the phase three trials so that that wouldn't be something to hold them back. So they were able to um, shorten the time to, to move between the phases. And then they also funded multiple companies at once and said, you know what, we're gonna give a bunch of you guys the money to search this with the, to increase the chance that somebody would have a result by the end of the year. So were there shortcuts taken? That's what everybody's concern is. Like, how do I know that this, this is safe? Well, all safety phases happened as they would have normally, okay? They didn't ask for their emergency use authorization until they reached their primary phase three endpoints. For Pfizer and Moderna, those endpoints were reaching a certain number of cases of COVID, okay? Once they'd reached a certain number of cases in both groups that was statistically significant, they were able to look back and say, okay, does the vaccine work or not? The fact that there's so much COVID floating around helped them get to these endpoints faster. If you're, if you're uh, developing a vaccine for a disease that's either rare or not super contagious, it can take forever to get enough cases to know if that vaccine works. Well, COVID's super contagious and it's everywhere. So they were able to get to that number of cases faster. And like I said, they continue to do safety studies on this. Um, we're gonna be coming up soon on a year since the first trial people got their vac first vaccine. And they're, gonna, they're being followed by um, the companies for several years after they get the shot. Okay, so the leading vaccines that you know we're all pretty familiar with now, and I'm sorry my red isn't showing up here. The first one is the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna. So that's basically a segment of mRNA, that little protein uh, 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 sequence that's surrounded in lipids, which are fats, and it tells your ribosomes, which are in your cells, to make the spike protein so that your body can respond to it. 
Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca. Johnson and Johnson is the one that just got EUA the past couple weeks here. This, they use a very weak virus form of an adenovirus, which is a common cold virus. And they put the, the mRNA um, in that virus. The virus comes in and infects your cells and stimulates them to pr produce the antibodies. But the virus is so weak that it doesn't make you sick otherwise. And then there's another one coming down the pike, Novavax, which um, is developed similar to our flu vaccines, the HPV and the, and the Hep B. So I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that one once they get closer to seeking approval. Okay, another fancy science diagram, but there's a, there's a point here. I wanna show you um, how this vaccine works. A lot of people are very concerned because it's an mRNA vaccine that has something to do with your genetics and that it could modify your DNA or mutate you in some way. Here's how it works. So you have your vaccine, it's the lipid membrane with the, with the mRNA inside. It fuses with your cell. It goes to your ribosomes. Those are kind of like the print protein printers in your cell. It says, please print this protein and, and translate it into the, now all it makes is the spike protein. It doesn't make the whole virus. Sends the spike protein back out into your bloodstream. Your immune cells take in that spike protein, break it down and build on antibodies to it. Down here is your nucleus. That is where your DNA is kept. Okay. Notice that the vaccine and the, uh, the uh, spike proteins never get anywhere near your nucleus or cross your nucleus. So it's impossible for it to interfere with your DNA. It's just not how it works. The body quickly degrades this DNA, this mRNA, breaks it down. So it's out of your system in a matter of hours to days. So it's kind of like a Snapchat video. You see it, it's there for a little while, and then it's gone. Or think of it this way. I send a job to the printer from my laptop. The printer prints out that document, but it doesn't remember it later, and the document doesn't change the function of the printer or, or how it works in any way. It's gone once the printing job is done. Now, your body makes mRNA all the time to code for other proteins you need. So if this didn't break down quickly, you would you would just be sludgy with mRNA. So you know this this is something your body is used to doing on a regular basis. Okay, so this is the efficacy curves for the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. The top curve in both these are people who did not get the vaccine, and this is the number of COVID cases going up. The people who did get the vaccine is the bottom line, which you can see it stays almost completely flat. So both of these vaccines were over 90% effective in stopping severe COVID infection. I mean, these are, these are amazing effectiveness curves that kind of went beyond the wildest dreams of what we hoped for when they started developing them. All right, well, what about the variants and the mutations? That's all over the news now. Well, viruses mutate, it's what they do. Um, it, it happens in, in, with every virus that we see. And in RNA viruses particularly are less stable than DNA viruses. So how does it happen? Well, when, they're, when the cell is replicating it, sometimes it makes a mistake. Sometimes it swaps the proteins. Sometimes it throws in a sequence that wasn't there. Um, sorry. The other thing is that the longer it's circulating among us, the more that it can mutate, the more hosts that it has. So the longer it runs around unchecked, the more it could potentially mutate to the point that, that we're gonna get, have difficulty treating or preventing it. So these are some of the variants in the news, the one from the UK, um, the one from South Africa. They are estimated to be more contagious, but there's a difference between being more contagious and more fatal, okay? More contagious means if I have this variant and I cough on you, instead of, say, releasing 10 copies of the virus, now I'm releasing 200. So there's more likely you're going to get sick and the other people in the room are going to get sick. It doesn't mean that the sickness will be worse. However, the caveat with that is, is we could see more deaths if we have a whole bunch more cases happening at once that overwhelm the hospitals. Then we see more deaths because of the health care system being unavailable. And we see more deaths from other causes because they can't get into the hospital either. And we're finding now that these variants were already here, which is not a surprise. 
Um, if you don't ask the question, you don't know the answer. And for a long time, we weren't asking the question. We weren't sequencing every case that came into the US, so we didn't know. Now we are looking a lot more closely and seeing, well, you know what? These were already here as early as last fall, if not sooner. Okay, so right now the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines do appear to at least be partially, if not more so, effective against the variants. Um, they were so effective to start with that even if they dropped to the 80s or 70%, that's still actually really effective for a vaccine. Um, the other thing that's great about the mRNA technology is it's very easy for them to update the vaccine. It's all, everything's already there. All they do is plug in a new protein sequence to match the variant. And they can actually have a new vaccine from sequencing to uh, distribution in as little as six weeks. Now, Johnson & Johnson and Novavax have shown a bigger drop in efficacy. Part of this is, can be due to the fact of when their trials were done and what countries they were done. Because keep in mind, Pfizer and Moderna were done first, and there was only so much virus around, though it was a lot. Later, these trials were in different countries with even higher levels of virus and possibly higher levels of the variants. So it's really hard to look at Johnson & Johnson and say, you know what, that's way less effective. I want one of the other ones because they weren't really tested under the same circumstances. However, not vaccinating at all increases that risk of more mutations and more variants. All right, side effects. So the side effects that we see with these vaccines are not because you've gotten COVID. They don't contain the virus, the body doesn't recreate the virus. What you're seeing is your immune system revving up to fight the virus. So this is the Moderna, this is the Pfizer, this is comparing to the Shingrix, one of the shingles vaccines, and the annual flu vaccine. You can see that the, the rates of side effects are actually not substantially more than that, okay? Most people will get side effects in the 24 to 48 hours after vaccination, more common with the second shot if you get a two-shot vaccine. Because that first shot sort of introduced your system to the, to the um, protein, then the second shot is like a booster and your system's more ready for it, so you get more symptoms. Um, I can tell you from, from personal experience, um, sorry, I, um, my husband and I both got it. Um, it was about a day of feeling pretty lousy. I was glad I had the day off. Um, I stayed in my pajamas, I watched TV, I took some time and all, and the next day I was like nothing had ever happened. So, and for me, as a scientist, it's gonna sound weird, but I was kind of reassured, because I'm like, it's working. It was kind of like those old deodorant, or uh, dandruff shampoo commercials, the tingle means it's working. I felt like, yes, immune response is happening. Okay, significant medical events that were also in the news that happened during the trials. Bell's palsy, if you're not familiar with that, it's when half of the face, the muscles get droopy. Um, there was a lot of press about this because of the cases in the trials. Actually, this was no more frequent than they would have expected Bell's palsy to occur anyways in the population. So the feeling is, was that it was not related to the vaccine. And we haven't, now that millions of doses have been given, seen this rash of Bell's palsy all over the world. Lymphadenopathy, also known as swollen lymph nodes. That actually makes sense. Your lymph nodes are, are where your um, infection-fighting cells are developed. So when they're getting, the factory's getting revved up, they are gonna get a little swollen for a while. This was temporary. And then interesting, um, in the Moderna trial, those who had had cosmetic facial fillers saw some swelling in their facial fillers. And I'm not, I'm not sure if they know why that is yet. However, it did respond very quickly to um, steroids and antihistamine. Okay, so how do we monitor vaccines? So um, when you get your shot, uh, they recommend that you sign up for vSafe and that's where you can do your voluntary reporting. You can report anything that happens and then they have daily and weekly check-ins on are you having any symptoms. The people who give the vaccines have to respond, have to report anytime someone has a reaction. So when you're in that 15 to 30 minute waiting period afterwards, if anything happens, that gets reported. Um, the the uh, sponsor of the vaccine or the company has to give periodic safety reports as well. And then beyond all that, we have VAERS, which is um, uh, basically a passive reporting thing um, for vaccine adverse effects response and responses. I wanna talk a minute about VAERS. 
because a lot of people who are against vaccination use reports in VAERS to show how dangerous the vaccines are. Nothing in VAERS is proven. Anybody can report anything they want to VAERS. Then what the CDC does is look at the data in VAERS and see if there's, oh gosh, there's a bunch of people with this side effect, we should study that. But just because it's in VAERS doesn't mean it happened. So there's a lot of um, internet memes going on right now about hundreds of deaths in VAERS after the COVID vaccine. Well, anytime someone dies after getting the vaccine, they have to report it. That doesn't mean they prove that the vaccine caused the death. And if you don't believe me, listen to this. At one point, there was a report in VAERS that a vaccine turned somebody into the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> so next time you see the VAERS meme, just remember, Incredible Hulk. What about allergic reactions? These got a lot of press early on. They've studied them though. The actual current rate of allergic reactions with Pfizer and Moderna at least is only 11 cases per every million shots given. And then the allergies seem to be related to the polyethylene glycol, which is also what's in Miralax if anyone's ever used that for constipation. So, um, you know, that's something if, if you've ever had an issue with that medication, you would certainly talk to your doctor before getting these shots. This is not easy to read. What I'm just pointing out is this is the CDC chart of, in terms of allergies, who is safe to get vaccinated and who should not. We got a lot of questions about this. Really the only people that are completely contraindicated are people who have reacted to what we know is in the vaccine, okay? If you, even if you've had a severe reaction to another medication, not a vaccine, but another medication, there's a good chance that you can get this shot with no trouble. Personally, I've anaphylaxed to penicillin, got the epinephrine, got almost intubated, and they said, nope, you're fine, because there's nothing from that in this vaccine. Some people are gonna uh, fall in the middle group where they've had an allergic, allergic reaction to a different vaccine in the past. Then obviously, yes, you wanna talk about that with your doctor and determine if this is something that's safe for you. But overall, there's actually very few people who can't get the vaccine. So what if you're pregnant or nursing? I'm, I'm just going to go through this really quickly. Um, basically, ACOG, which is the American uh, College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, kind of our governing body for obstetricians, has said just being pregnant or lactating in itself is not a reason not to get the vaccine. Okay? However, they do note there's no specific safety data yet. However, we do have data that when a pregnant woman gets COVID, she is more likely to end up on a ventilator or on ECMO or die than a non-pregnant woman. So it's a risk benefit thing that you need to discuss with your doctor. So if you're someone, if you're pregnant or you're breastfeeding and you can stay home, you're, you know, you're a stay-at-home mom or you work from home and you can, you can avoid exposure, I don't know that I'd get the vaccine either. But say you're an ER nurse and you're bathing in it every day, I'd probably get the vaccine even if I was pregnant. So again, it's just, it's just telling us to be smart. So long-term side effects and effectiveness. I'm gonna be perfectly honest, without a time, time machine, there's no we can, way we can say there won't be long-term side effects five to 10 years from now. That's, that's the honest answer. That being said, with every other vaccine besides varicella, we've never seen long-term side effects beyond six weeks after the vaccine. And the reason we saw the long-term side effects with varicella is because you actually get injected with live virus that can go dormant and, or go to sleep in your cells and then come out later as shingles. Same thing can happen if you actually have chickenpox, but that's the only vaccine that's ever had any proven long-term side effects. The other thing that, that kind of gives me comfort as a scientist is the nature of the vaccine. That mRNA breaks down within a couple, you know, hours to days. It's not hanging around for 10 years to do something to your system later. So, whereas we do know that you can get long-term damage from COVID. So, just something to think about. So, as of yesterday, almost 300 million doses have been given worldwide, and and over. Um, actually, I forgot to change. Oh yeah, 90 million, almost 90 million in the United States uh, so far, and we've actually seen very few side effects. And then you need to just balance your risk with the fact that there's still about 2,000 people dying per day in this country from COVID and that 10 to 30% of the survivors are having long-term uh, long effects and possibly disability. Something I want to point out here, 
correlation and causation. Just because event B comes after event A does not mean that event A caused event B. If we vaccinate 10 million people in two months, we would expect this many to have a heart attack anyway, this many to have a stroke, this many diagnoses of cancer. We'd expect 14,000 people of those 10 million to die for other reasons. So just because you hear about deaths in the news, don't, don't get me wrong, we're studying those very, very closely, but you can't automatically jump and say the vaccine caused that. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about Johnson & Johnson. It's the newest vaccine. One of the benefits of this one is it's only a single dose. It's one and done. So that's much easier logistically um, and hopefully will allow a lot more people to get vaccinated. It's also easier to store and easier to distribute. Um, I know there's some things in the news now that maybe Pfizer doesn't quite need the freezers that they thought it did, but right now what we have proven is that this is the only one that you can use a normal refrigerator. So a lot of people out in rural areas or places where um, they don't have big hospitals or health centers with, with super freezers um, are able to get this vaccine. Um, in the whole trial, only seven people died and none of them were in the vaccine group. Um, there was diminished efficacy in South Africa, likely due to that variant. And like we said, you know, Pfizer and Moderna, had they been tested in that environment, may have been less effective than we saw in their trials as well. And that's what we, we talked about that. Okay, real life effectiveness. So in Israel, they've already vaccinated more than half their population. So out of this one, in this study, they had 1.2 million, half of them got the Pfizer vaccine, both doses, and it decreased their COVID cases by 94%. So this was the first sign that widespread vaccination could actually end this and get us close to back to normal. Nursing home data in the US, they were the first ones to get the vaccines and the most concentrated in being able to give it. Their cases started falling earlier and faster than we've already seen in the rest of the world. So again, that's some evidence pointing to the vaccines being effective. All right, myths and misconceptions. So we've already talked about why the mRNA vaccine can't change your DNA. More people die from the COVID vaccine side effects than the actual virus. We, we've seen that to not be the case now with the millions of doses that have been given. This is a fun one, sort of. The vaccine implants a microchip or a nano tracker. Um, or in some people, this is the mark of the beast. I've heard that as well, okay? Every, everything that sounds crazy starts from a nugget of truth. So this one, I believe, started from a video that circulated around that someone actually cut and re-edited. It was, um, it was uh, an interview with a, with a man who makes, the, makes syringes for vaccines, and he was talking about putting the RFID chip, the tracker chip, on the outside of the syringe so that they could track where the vaccines went and when they were given and things like that. It wasn't in the vaccine but they recut the video to make it sound like that. Um, also, they, they, often with that, there's one with a, um, a video of Bill Gates talking about tracking people with the vaccine. Actually, if you watch the unedited clip of the conference that he was speaking at, he was actually talking, it was a financial inclusion forum and they were talking about tracking vaccines as a breakthrough innovation, not tracking people with the vaccine. So you really have to have a level of discernment when you're seeing things on social media and on the web. And I really recommend that you go back to the root source of things like this and see if it really says what you think it says. There was a concern in the beginning that the COVID vaccines could cause infertility or miscarriages. What actually happened is a, Pfizer that, uh, a scientist that worked for Pfizer about 11 years ago wrote to the UK board that decides you know, to approve vaccines saying that you shouldn't let people get this shot because theoretically the protein sequence is pretty similar to the protein sequence on human placental cells and it's going to make it people attack the placenta and miscarry and be infertile this was with no proof okay so they've actually looked at this the protein sequence is extremely specific it does not cause people to attack their own placental cells and one of the ways we know this is the studies of all the women who became pregnant and got COVID. There was no higher rate of preterm uh, loss. There was no higher rate of miscarriage. And they tested multiple babies afterwards and there were no 
uh, COVID virus uh, particles in their blood of, from the moms that, that had COVID when they delivered. Vaccines are full of dangerous chemicals and preservatives. This is, this is a, um, with the mRNA vaccines, this is less of an issue because they really don't have that much in them. But I wanna touch briefly on this because it is sort of part of that whole deep mistrust of vaccines that we're starting to see in certain areas of the population. So vaccines will often have preservatives or things in them to make them more effective. And when, if you look at the names of them and you Google what they're for, it can sound really scary. So for example, um, thimerosal, which is a mercury derivative. Everybody was up in arms about thimerosal. Um, it actually isn't the same type of mercury that gives you mercury poisoning, uh, like if you were to break a thermometer or eat a ton of mercury-laden fish. And there's such a small amount of it that your body clears it very quickly. At this point, there's not even, we don't even have thimerosal in any vaccines except for certain multi-dose vials of the flu shot. Another one is formaldehyde. Um, people look up formaldehyde and it's a known carcinogen. Why would I want to put a known carcinogen in my body? Well, the tiny amount in some vaccines is to help prevent the, the, the things in the vaccine from making you sick. And people don't realize is that you actually naturally have formaldehyde in your body as part of metabolic processes breaking things down. In fact, they measured it and there's 50 to 70 more times formaldehyde in the average infant's body than in a single vaccine dose. So again, big scary word, but you've got to know the context. And then finally, another one that people ask me a lot about is aluminum, okay? It's a naturally occurring element. It's, it's always, we always have a small amount of it in our blood. They took people um, before and after getting a full set of vaccines like we would give an infant and measured their aluminum levels and there was no change. I mean, it's such a microscopic amount. And finally, I can get COVID from the vaccine. You can't, at least not the current vaccines that are under EUA. They do not contain the virus or cause your body to make the virus. So if you get sick after, that is your immune system kicking in. All right, we're gonna talk about the fetal tissue one. That's why I skipped through that. Uh, vaccines in the Christian worldview. So there's a lot in the news about fetal derived cells, especially because they were used in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We're gonna talk about that. So these cell lines were all developed from aborted fetuses from about two to three decades ago. They were aborted for other reasons. Um, so one was because of congenital rubella syndrome, another one was psychiatric issues in the mother, one was an elective termination in the Netherlands. So does that make them okay? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I just wanna make the point there is that they weren't aborting babies to do research. Now these particular cell lines though are, are now have been replicated hundreds to thousands of times since. So the cells they're using today have no remnant of that original uh, child in them. So the video going around saying there's bits of chopped up baby in the vaccine, that's not true. So they've been used for years now in creating and testing other vaccines and treatments, including the Regeneron that President Trump got was developed using fetal line cells. Um, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the polio vaccine, food preservatives, cosmetics, there are quite a lot of things that these cells are used in. Again, I'm not saying it makes it right. What I'm saying is if that's your reason for refusing the vaccine, are you looking for that in everything else too? So, um, like I said, the AstraZeneca, which is not approved yet, and the Johnson & Johnson did use that, but the Pfizer and Moderna did not. Now, an independent lab did use fetal-derived cells to test the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, but they were not used in the production or the development. So, um, from an ethical standpoint, if you just don't want to have anything to do with a vaccine that came from uh, fetal-derived cells, Pfizer and Moderna is considered to be the, the best choice Though keep in mind right now, you may not get a choice just because of, of scarcity. So some things to consider. If you needed a lung transplant and somebody was murdered and, but his lungs were okay, would you decline that lung transplant because that means you support murder or you think people should be murdered? No, you're not complicit in that. And a lot of Christian um, 
scientists and, and theologians have discussed this and said, you know, are we complicit in the abortion of those fetuses 30 years ago by using their cells today? Um, these cell lines are old. Our technology now lets us replicate them pretty much indefinitely without any further fetal harm. I would just challenge you to think about God's power and his ability to redeem even the worst sin. We look in the story of Joseph and everything that happened to him, and Joseph was able to say, what you intended for harm for me, God intended for good. You know, the, the killing of those babies was a horrible, horrible sin, and, I'm, and I 100% believe that. But we live in a fallen world that's full of sin. And is this a way that God potentially redeemed that sin by using it to save millions and millions of lives? Just something to think about. Either I'm not saying either is right or wrong. I definitely punt to the spiritual leaders on that one. But just something to think about. And I think we need to remember that all lives are equally sacred to God. And failing to control disease means that millions will die needlessly that didn't need to. Okay? Um, I think something as evangelicals we need to think about is that People tend to criticize us for saying we're pro-life when it sounds like we're only pro-baby. All lives are sacred to God, so pro-life should be all the lives, including the elderly and the medically vulnerable. So is this an easy question to answer? No. Um, I don't have the answers. I just want you to kind of think about it from another perspective. Okay, so where are we in Nevada right now? They've opened up... um, vaccination for Nevada 65 and older, plus all the groups that came before. So frontline community folks, healthcare workers, things like that. The next group will be people with underlying conditions. We're not really sure what that's gonna look like in Nevada yet, whether you're gonna need a note from your doctor or whether it's just gonna be on the honor system. Um, But it's much easier to get vaccines now that the Johnson & Johnson is available because it is opening um, opening that supply. All right, I've talked a lot. Um, I hope this answered some of your questions, but I'm I'm open to other questions if anyone has any. Uh, We hear, you know, about so many mutations that are coming out, and uh, in my memory, it doesn't seem like when other viruses have, have presented themselves, there's been so much talk about mutations. So what is different about this it's, uh, it's actually not that different. Um, if you look, the flu actually mutates quite a bit, which is why some years the flu shot seems great, and other years the flu shot feels like, well, that didn't do anything. Um, it's because they're doing their best guess at the strains to come. Okay? Um, this virus so far doesn't seem terribly different from that. Um, and so far, the, uh, before the South Africa variant, the amount of mut- mutation we were seeing wasn't really enough to change how the vaccines responded. So the South African one is the first one that we're like, hmm, we might need another booster of this. But it actually isn't as uncommon as you think. Um, people that received the vaccine are requested to remain in the area for 15 minutes before they leave because of the possibility of an anaphylactic episode. How does that compare with other vaccines? Is it pretty much the same percentage of people that that experience that? Yeah, it's standard policy. You're supposed to be watched for 15 minutes after every vaccine. And if you've ever had a a severe reaction to another medicine like I did, they had me sit for 30 minutes. Uh, Because anaphylaxis does happen pretty quickly. That's not going to happen two hours later. That's a percentage comparable. Yeah, they're supposed to do that, but I also think, you know, some of them have been around so long that places could kind of gotten a little lazy about the monitoring. Thank you. One thing that I've kind of heard from some of my friends that are my age is should we not be taking it so that more older people take it first? Is that going to take away from how many are available? If we're going to be, a lot of my friends have had it, so should we kind of back up with our antibodies and let other people take our share of it right now? Well, that's where the the whole um, triage or the tiering system comes in. That's why you guys are 
kind of at the bottom of the pile <laughs> is because they want to get all those vulnerable and elderly folks first. However, if people are choosing not to take it, they're not going to just sit and deny it to the people in the next groups until everybody gets it. So they're basically opening and making sure everyone in that group has ample opportunity and then they move on. Actually, what they did with healthcare workers when, you know, once they felt like, all right, everyone who wants it right now has gotten it, we're going to move on to the next group. So I wouldn't worry about that too much because most are not even eligible yet. Um, when, you're, when your group comes up, that means everybody else has gotten a chance. This uh, earlier, but how often would this have to be taken? Like the flu shot is every year. Would the COVID vaccine also be along that same lines? Um, I don't think we really know yet. Um, they, I, I saw another thing circulating on social media. Well, why should we get the vaccine if it's only good for three months? No one said it's only good for three months. That's just at the time of the EUA. That's how long it had been um, for the most of the data. It had been three months. So they're, they're monitoring that now. All the people in the studies are getting regular um, blood tests and things like that. I'm hoping that it'll just be at the very most frequent annual like the flu. Um, but once we get these, get enough people vaccinated and get this virus down to a reasonable level, we might find that we don't even need that. So short answer is we don't know. <laughs> I was just wondering your medical opinion on, I know you're not in charge of public policy, but for someone like me, that's got both shots, right? What's your opinion on the continuation of mask wearing and social distancing when you've been you've been vaccinated. All right, that's a really good question, and actually, a lot of in, people in public health are pushing the CDC that they need to say something about this. Um, the feeling right now is that if you're vaccinated, you should be able to get together with other vaccinated people with no problem. The thing that we're not sure about is that whether the vaccine. So what was studied with the vaccine is whether it prevented severe illness not whether it presented, prevented asymptomatic infection. That doesn't mean it doesn't prevent asymptomatic infection, we just don't have the data yet. Um, so the concern with continuing masks and social distancing is that if you're vaccinated, the question is, are you still getting it and passing it even though you don't get sick? And so that's why they haven't pulled back on the restrictions. That is really being studied hard right now though because every other vaccine we've had has also reduced transmission. So most of us feel like that's probably going to be the case here. We just don't have proof yet. But um, I definitely, as both as a physician and just as someone with elderly parents, once my elderly parents had, were two weeks out from their second shot, there was hugging and there was no masks. So um, just keep, but keep in mind when you're out in bigger public places that there is, a, there is a potential, we're not sure how much, that you're still transmitting it even if you don't get sick. Does that make sense? Just speaking of masks, I'm curious, why are we wearing masks? Why are we wearing them? Yeah. Because there's a lot of data showing that masks significantly reduce spread of the disease to others. And if you're an asymptomatic carrier, you could be spreading the disease to other people and making them sick. So a lot of data showing that the masks don't actually prevent viruses from leaving you. Like they, 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 they go around the mask, they go through the, well, through the mesh? They're not 100% no. They don't 100% prevent it, no, they don't, but no one ever said they did. However, they do significantly reduce the spread of, of respiratory aerosols and, and um, respiratory droplets. And in actual randomized controlled trials, good studies, that has been proven. And, and that, sorry, I just want to follow up on that. And that's, that outweighs the harm of breathing in your own bacteria by wearing a mask There's all the time? There's actually no harm from breathing in your mask, breathing in, um, wearing a mask all day. In medicine, we have surgeons that wear them for 12, 14 hours and have been doing so for years. They've done studies measuring people's oxygen levels and also measuring their carbon dioxide levels. Um, 
Now, if you wear the same cloth mask every day and you never wash it, well, you might get an infection on your skin around your face. But especially if you're using disposable paper masks and, and, and getting a new one each, each time you go out, then there's, there's pretty much zero risk of harm to you. How is it that we see frontline workers that have a bunch of like rashes and like just they're all tore up on their face? Because they're wearing N95s, which are sealed to your face, which is different than this. An N95 is sealed to your face so that basically no air can get in or out except for the tiny particles that come through. And those are typically the masks that they're using in the studies that show that the virus is less effective or in spreading the virus. No, it actually isn't. They've studied everything from varieties of cloth masks to gaiters to paper masks. I'd like the link to that so I could read that myself personally. Yeah, I, okay. can, I can get that information for you. So question is, if you've had the way that God made us and you've already had COVID, I mean, is the why are we still wearing masks? Should we get vaccinated if you've already had it and your body's doing what it's supposed to do? Because reinfection does happen. It's not common, but people have been infected more than once. And right now, we don't know how long your immunity lasts from a natural infection. But they have checked antibodies on folks, and some people stop having an immune response in as little as three months after their COVID infection. Okay, I forgot what my other question was. So, because it's COVID kicking in. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, again, that, I guess, since they don't know, I mean, what really truly is a percentage of reinfections? I mean, we're talking. The vaccine is 94% effective, and then it's a 1.8% of those could be fatal to that last 6%. It seems like a lot of restrictions. And obviously, we love, love our neighbor, and we want to take care of them, but it's a little bit onerous, and I think it kind of impacts the credibility of the vaccine, even saying, hey, you're vaccinated, but you still got to social distance and wear a mask. Well, it's like, you don't do that for polio. You don't do that for any, any other diseases or any vaccine we've ever had in the past. So it's... Well, a difficult thing. Okay, well, uh, just to address that, first of all, you have to look at how the disease is spread, which they aren't all spread the same way, the level of contagiousness, okay, and then also the fact that this is a brand new virus. So you're literally living in the middle of a historic event, or as they say, we're building the plane while we're still flying it. So there are going to be some things we don't have the answers for, but no one would unless they could go 10 years into the future and look back and tell us. So all we can do is make recommendations based on the best information we have in front of us, knowing that as we grow and learn, that may change tomorrow. We may find out six months from now that you don't transmit at all after you have the vaccine and we can get rid of masks and forget all of this. But you're living in the middle of that history happening. And unfortunately, if science isn't such that we get to have an all the answers one month or two months or even a year after something brand new happening. So the question is, do I err on the side of being conservative and, and preserving others, or is it more important for me to meet my needs for convenience or happiness or whatever um, and just take a gamble? So that's a personal decision you've got to make, but that's the way I would frame it. Um, we're living in the middle of a, of a brand new thing, and all I can tell you is what we know today. Thank you so much, Susan. It was uh, very informative, and thanks, everybody, for... Um, uh, you know, uh, being as respectful as, as possible in, in disagreement. Um, Susan, if anybody has questions, can they come up and uh, chat with you or reach you? Or they can, they can message me on, on Facebook. Facebook, yeah. My the church bulletin, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Let's, uh, let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you so much for bringing us here to fellowship together today. We ask you to bless the preacher as he prepares. In Jesus' name, amen.